do so as an act of worship. All of his word is inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative for all men. Let's give attention to it now. Matthew chapter 16, verse 28. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you please be seated? Let's pray together and ask for the Lord's. Father, as we've already confessed from Psalm 14, we we are born in a foolish state. And we require Your work in our hearts to enable us to understand any of Your Word. Father, as we come seeking to understand Matthew's Gospel, we ask for Your help. We ask that as Your dear children, You would transform our hearts as we understand Uh, the work of Christ and the work of Your Spirit in the world. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How often do you think about the ascension of Jesus Christ? How often? You know the ascension, you, you know what I'm talking about. When we talk about the ascension of Christ, we're talking about the fact that that um, 40 days after His resurrection, He was lifted up into heaven. This is recorded for us in Acts chapter 1. How often do you think about that? You know, we have, we have time designated every year where we think about the birth of Christ, His nativity. And Christmas, we think about His birth and how significant that was. And we're so happy about it, we put lights all over our homes to say we love, we love Christmas. We exchange gifts. And, and we also have a time each year where we, um, 
we, we think about the resurrection, don't we? Uh, the crucifixion and his resurrection, we, we call that Easter. And so we, we think a lot about the death of Christ and what that meant and his resurrection. But how, how much time do you, do you spend thinking? We don't have a day for ascension. There, there's a day for the ascension on the, on the church calendar, as it were, but, but we don't do anything special. Uh, we don't get an elder and get a pulley and lift him up and remember the ascension of Christ and what took place. So I don't think we get any volunteers for that, apparently. Um, but is, the, is Christ's ascension, is it significant? Yeah, it's a big deal. It is a big deal that Jesus ascended up into heaven. It's contained in the Apostles' Creed, isn't it? He ascended up into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And it's from that place that he shall come again to judge the living and the dead. It's important for you on a practical, everyday basis. Would you hold, hold your place here in Matthew and then turn over with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Let's read together Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So, so Paul is going into this idea of the fact that every believer uh, has a living union with the Lord Jesus Christ. When the Holy Spirit causes you to be born again and he, he gives you a new heart and a new mind, He puts you in union with Christ Jesus. And remember, this is Jesus talks about the vine and the branches. That, that's the idea that His life flows in the believer. Now, look at the end of Ephesians chapter 1. Now this, this is all, it's a long, Ephesians 1, it, it's all a long uh, sentence, but I want you to pick up with me uh, in verse 20. Let's pick up in verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So there's the ascension of Christ. He raised him from the, the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And Paul uh, will go on to describe the believer as the, he was alienated with God, but now he says you are seated with him. This is the nature of your union with Christ, even right now, that you partake of his resurrection life, and you are, as it were, seated with him in the heavenly places, and he blesses you there. This is the nature of your union. You died with Him. You were raised with Him. And you ascended with Him. 
What is the significance, though, that, that Christ in our flesh is seated in the heavenly places right now? What's the significance of that? How would you explain that to someone? What's, what's the big deal? What is the big deal that Jesus was taken up in the clouds into the heavenly places and that he's there right now? Why does that have any meaning for us? Well, I believe that when we read of the transfiguration of Christ, this passage, it begins to explain to us the significance of Christ's ascension, what that means. And so we're going to spend some time thinking about that from Matthew chapter 16 and, verse, and chapter 17. Remember, though, as we get to this transfiguration, what have we come through? Well, Jesus has promised his disciples that they're going to be persecuted. He has promised them in Matthew chapter 10, he said that they would be dragged before governors and kings. And so last week, as we thought about his, his teaching to his disciples, he said, you're not ready to go out yet. I don't want you to tell anybody who I am yet because you're not ready to be my apostles. There's more that you have to learn, more that you have to understand. In fact, you need to be ready to take up your cross. And you remember that that literally means if you were going to a Roman crucifixion, they would require you literally to take up the crossbeam and walk it to the place of your capital punishment. Take up your cross and follow me. I'm going first, but you will come after me. He's promised them that he would go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be treated terribly at the hands of the elders and the scribes and the high priests. I'm going to be killed, and then I'm going to be raised again the third day. And remember what Peter did. That's not happening. There's no way. Your crucifixion at the hands of the civil magistrate, that is not in the plan. And how did Jesus respond? Get behind me, Satan. You are hindering the work of God. It is the work of God that the Christ should go to the cross and die and be raised again. In fact, any man who wants to come after me must deny himself. He must renounce himself. But gentlemen, understand... I am building my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In other words, they can't stand. They can't keep me out. Revelation describes the Christ as in His resurrection coming back with the key of death and Hades. And here, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 28, we have this interesting statement. Look at it with me. He, he ends this sermonette, as it were, to the apostles by saying this. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Well, that, that's interesting. You and I, we think about the kingdom of Jesus Christ and we, we think about the reign of Christ. Jesus will, will reign. He is a king. 
He is a rightful king over all the earth. And here he promises these apostles and perhaps some other ancillary disciples who had gathered with them. And he says, some of you standing here will not taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. How do you fit that into your eschatology? You read that and on the surface it seems like Jesus is saying that some of the men standing right there with Him would see Christ coming in His kingdom. And we hear those words and you think, I'm, I'm, I understand what that means. He means that He will return in His kingdom and that He's going to stand on the earth and every tongue and every tribe is going to confess Him as Lord. I understand what He's talking about there. I'm going to suggest to you that Jesus is not talking to you about an end of the world coming in His kingdom. When Jesus says to the disciples that some of them would not see death or not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom, He is referring there to the inauguration of His reign at His ascension. The inauguration of His reign over heaven and earth at His ascension. To understand this, and I promise we're going to get into this, and I'm I'm mindful of the time, but this is why I cut the sermon way down. I I do want you to turn over with me, though, to Daniel chapter 7. This is going to play a significant role in how we understand what Jesus previews for the disciples in Matthew chapter 17. Let's begin reading at Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. You can hear this language of revelation that John picks up on repeated in Revelation. And the court sat in judgment and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Let's stop there for just a second. What is the image or the picture that is being given to Daniel here? 
Well, the Ancient of Days is, this is the name that is given to Jehovah. He is the Ancient of Days, the Eternal One, the One who has no beginning and no end. And so he's seated on his throne in this scene, and there are thousands upon thousands who serve him around his throne. This is a, a reference to the angels who serve Yahweh night and day, and they do his will. And then we have this scene in verse 13. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, what happens? There came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that this is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ in his ascension with the clouds of heaven. Remember in Acts chapter 1, what happened? He went up. In the clouds, he will return. According to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he will return in the clouds. But this time, he's going up into the heavenly places and he is presented as a son of man to the ancient of days. This is a, a reference to his ascension that Christ goes up in our flesh as a son of man and he takes his seat at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And notice what happens at his ascension in verse 14. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. Does that sound familiar to you? Matthew 16. The gates of hell will not prevail. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. But why do we focus on this moment? Because what Daniel 7 teaches us is that the moment Christ ascended, all of human history pivots. All of human history pivots. Because the second Adam has passed the test. And he has ascended the mountain of God. And he is seated there in his resplendent righteousness, ruling and reigning. And what kind of dominion has been given to the risen Christ? It's a dominion over all the earth that all peoples, all nations, and all languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. It will not pass away, ever the Christ that we worship, the Christ that we serve, is the Christ who is seated on His throne, in other words, having ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and His reign will never, ever end. All things are subjected to Him. And so as we turn back now to Matthew chapter 17... It is this ascension of Christ. It is this ascension of Christ that he gives a preview of to a select few apostles. Remember, 1628. Some of you who are standing here with me today will not taste death until you see the Son of, God, of Man coming in His kingdom. The same Son of Man that Daniel had a vision of. The Son of Man who 
rose with the clouds of heaven to the Ancient of Days. It is this same Son of Man. And now they see a preview, as it were, of that Son in His resplendent glory at His ascension. It was the ascension that is then the coronation of Christ. It is the moment that He receives His crown, that He has conquered death and hell He has bound the evil one so that he cannot deceive the nations. And he rules and reigns from heaven in your flesh. So as we turn back to Matthew chapter 17, I want you to notice a few things about this this Christ. Chapter 17, verse 1. Who who are the ones who will go with Christ Christ? Uh, who won't taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom, as it were, into His kingdom. Peter, James, and John, His brother. These are the sum. Notice that He takes them as we consider our first point that Christ the King receives the nations. Notice that He takes them to a high mountain. 17.1, And after six days, the days of preparation... Jesus took with Him Peter and James and John, His brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Now, remember that just a few verses before, we learned that Jesus was with them in Caesarea Philippi. So if you think of the the geography here, you've got uh, the Sea of Galilee and Capernaum, which was the home base, as it were. If you travel about 30 miles north, you come to a place called Caesarea Philippi. And this is where they were located. It, was, it would have been sort of the northernmost border of Israel. And, and so if you'd have gone beyond there in ancient Israel, you'd have been in Lebanon, the place where they got all their timber. Well, at this particular place, there is a mountain called Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is 9,000 feet high. Most of the year it's covered with snow. And so when Matthew describes this exceedingly high mountain, he's, he's talking about a place where Jesus is the Sherpa who takes the disciples up to the top. And you can see for miles all around. This is where they have gone. And immediately for you, because you've, you've read these Gospels, you know that this mountain typology, this is significant. Jesus doesn't go up on mountains for nothing. Adam was created on Mount Eden. And he was thrust out. And in Psalm 24, the the psalmist wonders, how do we get back up to the top of the mountain? Who can go up? Well, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount. Where? On the Mount. He is the the Moses-like figure who delivers the correction to the law that the Pharisees have corrupted. And so as we see this exceedingly high mountain, our our minds become tuned. We think, okay, this is significant. This, This geography is significant in the life of Christ. Why? Because the mountain represents His throne. The mountain represents the throne of Christ. Psalm chapter 2, verse 4. My king is seated on my holy hill of Zion. Isaiah chapter 2. What do we read there? 
that the mountain of God would become, would cover the earth. It would become greater than all the other mountains. We think of the mountain upon which God gave the law to Moses. This mountain typology is significant. And Jesus takes his, his disciples then to the top. As I said, this is likely Mount Hermon, which was over 9,000 feet high. I want you to turn back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 3. In Deuteronomy chapter 3, um, what's happening here is Moses is recounting the Israelite victories. He's reminding the people of what they've gone through and of the lands that they've conquered. And remember, they are about to go behind Joshua. They need to be strong and courageous. And so he's reminding them. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 3, he mentions this mountain that Jesus ascended. Look with me at verse 8. So we took the land at that time out of the hand of the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan from the valley of the Arnon to Mount Hermon. Now, here's an interesting little little note that is added. It's just this editorial note in verse 9. The Sidonians call Hermon Syrian and the Amorites call it Sinir. And you think, well, why, why does the author want us to know, why do we need to know the previous names? And then in, and Joshua's given another name. Why do we need to know the previous names? And, and Jewish commentators on this verse, they look at it and they say, here's what's happening here. This mountain that they call Hermon is so desirable, it is so significant that every subsequent king gives it a different name. And they will say that this mountain is so significant that all the nations want it. All the nations have a city in Hermon. And do you think that's lost on Christ? When He ascends up to Mount Hermon, He is ascending it as its final King. And the name to which Christ would, the name that Christ would give to this mountain is Zion. This is the place that represents His rule. It's not Jerusalem. He rules from Zion, the city of David. And what's being depicted here is the fact that Christ is, as he is lifted up, is the one to whom all the nations would flow. What changed in the new covenant is that salvation no longer belonged exclusively to Israel as an ethnic people. You understand that to be saved, to be a, a son of the covenant, you, you no longer have to become an Israelite ethnically. But what the apostles explain is that now all of the nations flow to Christ. 
so that we understand that they are not Israelites who are born Israelites, but those who, like Abraham, look to Christ for salvation. You become an Israelite inwardly. Look with me at Romans chapter 4. Note what Paul says here at Romans 4, 11. Uh, Let's start with 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised? That is, those who are physically, as it were, Israelites. Is the blessing just for them? Or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness, Genesis 15, 6. How was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. In other words, Abram was saved. He was received by God. He was counted as righteous before he was ever circumcised and considered a child of Israel. The purpose was to make him the father of whom? All who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. What, what Paul is saying is that this is how do you... How do you count the descendants of Abraham? Well, look at the faithful. Look at those who profess faith in Christ. These are God's people. And this is what is elucidated in the new covenant. How how are you made right with God? Through Christ, the risen and ascended Savior, who, who is reigning over the earth at this very moment. It's Christ the risen and the ascended Savior. Why do we gather every Sunday to worship Him? What are we doing? We are worshiping the risen and ascended King, the right, righteous lawgiver over all the earth. Christ went up the mountain and gave His apostles this preview of His ascension as a declaration that He is the one who receives the nations. He is the one who receives the nations. The Son of Man ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And I'm going I'm to stop there for this morning and we'll return to this idea. I'm going to take up our other points uh, next week. Um, but let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, as we come to You, we recognize that You are the Savior of all people. That that You are the One who speaks with God. That You are our righteous ruler. And Father, we need to be reminded of these words because our hearts are so prone to become fearful. We're so prone like the disciples in the boat to look around at our circumstances and say, Master, don't you care that we perish? 
And so we look to You now, O Lord, our ascended Savior, and we cry out to You and ask that You would be faithful to Your covenant. We ask that You would help us to be faithful in the proclamation of Your Gospel and the discipleship of Your people. That You would cause Your Word to go forth with power and that You would demonstrate Your righteous reign over all the earth. We pray all this in Your name, Lord. Amen.